Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast is for you if you have an insane drive to find the truth of things. It's not the good answers that we seek, but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields, all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there, and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes, and as always, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Pablos Holman, and he is implementing science fiction, uh, and we're going to have a great talk about what that actually means to implement science fiction, because we are at that time, it seems like, where science fiction is starting to come back into uh, the realm of possibility after 20, 30 years of sort of like oh, you know, they built a social network kind of thing. Uh, so welcome to the show, Pablo. Thanks. Yeah, I'm excited about it. Yeah. Uh, so what is the most science fiction-y thing that you've seen recently? Oh, man. What can I talk about that's new? <laughs> um, you know, here's one that I, I'm pretty excited about. Um, we have a company that is putting solar panels in space. And when you do that, they solve it solves the two biggest problems with solar panels, which is clouds and nighttime. Because in space, you really have neither. Space looks like it's nighttime all the time because it's dark out there, but it's actually <laughs> uh, just there's nowhere for the photons to land. So it looks dark. So basically, you have sunshine 24-7 in space. So if you put a solar panel in space, you can get sun, depending on where you put it, you can get sun 24-7. But then what you can do is you can beam that energy down to Earth using radio waves. And the radio waves can go right through clouds. So you can get energy to Earth in the middle of the night during a snowstorm anywhere on the planet that way. And uh, we have a company called Virtus Solis that's been developing this technology that is really aiming to commercialize it soon. And people don't know it's possible, but this is a way to get carbon-free energy that scales to anywhere on the planet. And um, yeah, I'm excited about that. So, mm. Is that like a Dyson Sphere? I saw somebody talking about it. <laughs> yeah, it's like a budget Dyson Sphere. Budget yeah. Dyson Sphere <laughs> is this idea kind of, but you basically surround a star like the sun with solar panels and collect 100% of the energy that's coming out of it. Um, that's sort of the extreme long-term science fiction version, but you know, this is, this is like a, a baby Dyson sphere. It's just <laughs> step one, step yeah. one to a Dyson sphere. Yeah. Version 0. 0.000. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's, uh, we collect less than that amount of energy from the sun. So, uh, okay. That's super interesting. Um, and, and so beaming the energy down, like why hasn't anybody done it yet? So that's the part that's sort of least intuitive to people because the notion of wireless energy transfer is, sounds, it, it doesn't sound like something people can see. But the truth is we do it all the time. I mean, that's how radio works. That's how Wi-Fi works. You're, you're transmitting energy from your Wi-Fi base station to your computer or from a cell tower to your phone. Um, you know, that is wireless energy transfer. It's just that we don't, we're not, we don't, it's not optimized for transferring energy, it's optimized for transferring data. Mm. But you could make Wi-Fi for energy just by tuning it to be transmitting more energy and less data. Um, 
so that is totally possible and it's and it's true really enabled by um new technologies that allow us to manage the beam steering and beam formation in a way that was sort of expensive and heavy and impractical before and so now really in the last decade we've got the technology to just really control those beams in a very tight fashion and so what that means is you can put the energy exactly where you want it so in space we can have solar arrays in space that collect the energy from the sun and then turn it into a beam of radio waves and aim it right at an antenna on earth and uh, that is actually you know, not that hard to do. We do it all the time now. And so uh, we don't do it in space all the time, but we do a lot of beam forming and beam steering. That's happening in 5G. It's happening in satellite communications and things. Um, so now we just use that same technology, but send a lot uh, more energy mm. and collect it um, on Earth. Yeah. And Super then you put it right on the grid. Yeah. So, so it's 24-7 power. You don't need batteries. You don't need storage. You don't need transmission lines, which are a lot of the other big problems that keep us from scaling energy, mm. especially renewables. And so it sounds like the new space sort of ecosystem that's popped up in the last decade is probably allowing for this to be more and more of a reality every day. Has there any has there any kind of been any key changes in terms of the space ecosystem that allow yes. you guys to think about this? Yeah. Yeah, good good yeah, good question. So there's one and one really important one that matters for everything which is launch cost. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had helped start Blue Origin back in 2001. And that was when we saw that, you know, maybe there was a way to get, you know, to get going to space on track, we needed to reduce launch cost and that, and, the, and now, getting launch cost down is the kind of thing that, you know, really requires, you know, a massive change in the economics. And so the first one was reusable rockets and that's what SpaceX and, and Blue have done since. Um, and then, you know, the track there is to build big reusable rockets and that's kind of what Starship is about. Mm -hmm. So in the space shuttle days, space shuttle was kind of like not actually very reusable <laughs> because you throw away those massive boosters, but it was about $40,000, $50,000 a kilogram Ooh. to put stuff in space so if you want to put a macbook in space that's going to cost you 40 or fifty thousand dollars now um we're at this point where spacex got it down to about call it twenty seven hundred dollars a kilogram so spacex can put a macbook in space for twenty seven hundred dollars doing sp solar energy in space gets kind of irresistibly cost effective at around three hundred dollars a kilogram mm -hmm. Interesting. But the SpaceX target for Starship, their big rocket, is $10. $10. Yes. Oh, nice. So, so this decade, we will be at a point. We have Blue Origin coming online. We have potentially Relativity, some of these other you know space launch companies that have better economics. And if any of them succeed at all at getting the price down, we'll, we'll very soon be at a point where it'll be, you know, irresistibly cost effective to do solar in space and i think that that 
you know, it's it's really that number that matters for everything people wanted to do in space. If you want to manufacture in space or mine asteroids or build satellite networks or whatever, it's really that launch cost number that is the kingpin. And then, you know, there are a bunch of other things we could talk about doing things in space, but that's really what drives what, you know, what makes it possible. That's very interesting. Uh, what other things does this does this $10 a kilogram uh, thing open up? We talked about manufacturing space, mining asteroids. I guess I have a question about manufacturing space. Like why would somebody yeah. want to manufacture in space? It makes sense why people would want to mine asteroids. Yeah. What does gravity do? In terms yeah. Of yeah. It's not intuitive, but, um, and, and for basically any application, you can just pin it to some point on that cost curve. Right. So I said, you know, space solar at about 300 a kilogram. Some things work at 500, some things work at 100, some things don't work at, until you're down to 10. Mm. So, you know, you could sort of, but so if you're working on one of these things or investing them, what you want to do is go figure out where on that cost curve do we got to be for this to be economical? And, you know, we, you know, I have my opinions and other people have their own, but the important thing is just to do that exercise. And then the, you know, for other applications that we want to do in space, things like space solar you know, that one makes a lot of sense right now. And I can do that um, type of thing, you know, in a venture capital context, because it is something that has a massive terrestrial market. Like energy is the biggest market on earth. Mm -hmm. And so every panel you put up pays for its ride and it pays for itself and it pays for its, it makes money. So you can see how there could be a business there in a, on a kind of venture time horizon. Other things like mining asteroids might take too long to be able to, to start building a business right now um, because you have the technical risk of how do I get all this stuff yeah. in space and land on asteroid and then the technical risk of how do I get the stuff just, you know, mined off the asteroid and then how do I send it back to Earth? So there's just a lot there. Um, but, you know, if you could do it, there's, a, there's asteroids out there that are worth like a hundred trillion dollars because they're made of platinum and gold and stuff. So, um, so you can see how we'll eventually want to do that. It just might not be something you could, I, I don't personally, I don't think you could do it in a decade. And that's kind of how long you have if you're, yeah, if you're, interesting. If you're, if you're with most of the financing models we have. So then if you look at why manufacture in space, so there's some, one thing, there's a couple of things you get for free in space. Hmm. One of them is vacuum. You get really, really, really good vacuum. And on Earth, we can make vacuum, but we have to use cryogenic pumps. And it's just in, in our best case scenario, you, we can never make a vacuum that's as good as what you get for free in space. <laughs> and so for a lot of things like computer chips, you really need a vacuum. And the better the vacuum, the better the chips you can make. Mm -hmm. So all of our chips, even though they look like perfect little you know, uh, machinations made by leprechauns, they actually have a lot of flaws in them. And the, and the, the flaws in the silicon even make them inefficient. It makes them make more heat than they, than they should. Whereas if you manufacture those chips in space, you may well be able to make them closer to perfect. And you could get to a point where the computer chips themselves were dramatically faster and more efficient, less uh, and, and made, you know, did more computation and made less heat. Mm -hmm. So that's, a, that's an example. It's going to be hard to do. It's going to take a while, but we can start working on that now. 
Um, some people are working on those kinds of things. Um, the other thing you get for free in space is uh, low zero to low gravity, mm -hmm. right? And so, and gravity at a you know at like the atomic scale, you know, still has significant effects, and that is a lot of what um, you know creates those imperfections, like in semiconductors. Um, you know, it is impossible, as far as we know, to make a ball bearing on Earth that's actually round or like optimally round. So if you made ball bearings in space, then they could be very perfectly round. <laughs> um, uh, fiber optics you could make in space and they would have less imperfections. Um, so you could make fiber optic cable in space and it could be much closer to perfect. Anything that's a that's got a crystalline structure. structure. So mm -hmm. there's things like that that people fantasize about doing. Um, drugs can be made in space. Uh, in fact, um, there's a company doing the first drug production run in space right now, mm -hmm. I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's happening right now. I don't remember their name offhand. Um, and you could look that up. But yeah, but yeah so there's certain, uh, you know, anything when you're trying to operate at the molecular level and you need a lot of precision and accuracy, it might be done better in space. Yeah. And so, so those things are possible. You have to launch your entire factory and then you have the problem of how do you get the, get the stuff back down. So there's people who are making companies trying to deorbit stuff from space. And that's a whole separate class of problem. So, you know, look, I think there's a lot of potential there. I tend to be very skeptical about, I, I, I tend to be uh, bullish about these things on a long time horizon, mm -hmm. you know, and in, in something measured in decades or centuries, we're definitely going to do all of those things. Mm -hmm. But in one decade, it, it's going to, it's pretty hard to convince me that you can get through all the, all the things that are necessary <laughs> to make a real business. That is so interesting. Just to, just to think about it. I've never thought about it before this conversation. I mean, I've thought about the general structure of venture capital, but you're really dealing on a 10-year time horizon to try to make yes. a good investment that will beat the market that's riskier. But if it's riskier, but if you actually uh, do win, then you get to replicate things like uh, the semiconductor or all these or all these different super good. No, it's the semiconductor. And um and 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 so it's fascinating to consider that in the in the realm of yes. like what could be possible in the next 10 to 50 years. Exactly. And try to get down into 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 so, yeah. That is that's a hundred percent of the game. I mean, you know, the way I cheat is mm -hmm. I look on. You know, if I'm I'm looking for what I'm doing is I'm looking for those force multipliers. Like, what is is there a new technology that gives us ten x, hundred x, thousand x advantage over the way humans used to do something? And and that's what that's fundamentally what technology means, right? Humans invented a way of doing something better. Mm -hmm. And so that's what gets me excited. It's like, okay, you know, some of the things we're doing now, we just had to build version one, <laughs> but mm -hmm. now we can do it better. You know, we built an entire auto industry off of internal combustion engines, and that was awesome. But now we can do it better with electric. You know, there's mm -hmm. those opportunities. And so I basically cheat by just looking at it and saying, okay, 100 years from now, you know, would we keep burning coal we dug out of the ground or would we beam power down from space? Mm -hmm. And the answer is usually pretty easy to ask, answer if you look on a hundred year time horizon. 
But since I run a venture fund and people who are out there that are investors need to know, like, you know, you have to put a return on the books mm -hmm. within less than a century. <laughs> Usually it's 10 years. Yeah. And so, so then you ask yourself, okay, is it going to take a century to put solar panels in space or could we do it in 50? What about 40? What about 30 or 20? And maybe it's only 10. And, it, and, and so if you can convince yourself that, okay, I could get through that in 10 years or less, now maybe we've got an actual technology that we can invest in and bring to life and see a return in, in, in a fund. And, that, and now you have the you know, now you have the makings of a, a potentially a real big hit because, because unlike most of all the startups in the world and all the so-called tech companies that are just making iPhone apps, we have a real technology driver. It, you know, this is what we call deep tech. You know, we have a real technology driver that could make something 10x, 100x, 1000x better. Mm -hmm. And that's what, that's the real name of the game. That's what, that's how you get those that's how you get those big wins and that's how you move humanity forward. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot because I grew up in Silicon Valley in a family that does investment. I've been, you know, around yeah. my whole life. And uh the when I was early in my life, all these these massive changes had happened because of the of the semiconductor. And I was born yes. after that had already existed. It started to allow me to create play crazy video games, which totally blew yeah. my mind when I was a kid. Uh, and then since then, probably we're starting around, you know, I mean, maybe it was the iPhone that was the last major kind of jump. Uh, but uh, there, since then, there hasn't been too big of an effect in terms of real technologies. Like software was interesting. The fact that Facebook was created with a network the whole world together. That's interesting. Um, there's also a lot of crazy changes, negative changes that didn't really come about from from yeah. the semiconductor, but that did, did come about through all these social networks. Uh, but what I'm starting to get the sense is that there is a deep tech renaissance happening. It might be yes. in San Francisco. Uh, do you think it's centered in San Francisco or do you think it's global? Well, look, what I think is, you know, software is eating the world, but the world can't eat software. And, and we think we have this big tech industry, but we really just have a big software industry. Yeah, that's exactly that. And Software is amazing. It's generally applicable. You know, computers and software, you can put them everywhere. You can make almost anything better with them. That's what we've been doing for decades, but we got kind of drunk on software. And now what's happened is we structured everything in the world around software instead of structuring it around technology. So we have, you know, so we have a software industry, we have a software capital industry. There's no there's no Shackleton in most venture capital firms. Like yeah. we are not doing venture. Yeah. Be honest, we're doing software. Yeah, that's what SaaS holes are doing every day, <laughs> and it's fine. We need that, but what it has done is it's helped. It's caused us to neglect the actual technologies that that could make a big difference, mm -hmm. right? And when you want to solve, so you know the tech industry's big win is they're proud of having disrupted the taxi industry. Yeah. Well, that's a pretty irrelevant industry. What about, you know, if we disrupt, I don't know, General Motors, General Mills, General Electric, or Saudi Aramco, like let's go after the trillion dollar industries. You won't solve them with software alone. So at some point, somebody's got to get their hands dirty. Somebody's got to actually build something physical. Somebody's got to actually go do the hard stuff because all the easy stuff's getting done anyway. Mm -hmm. So 
I think uh, that's what I think of. That's what deep tech means to me. And that's the kind of stuff I like to work on. And that's just where I see all this amazing latent potential. Like we are, that's, and that's the deep tech renaissance you're talking about. Like we're at this moment in time where people are waking up to this and realizing, holy shit, all the big opportunities, all the industries that are trillions of dollars a year, all the things that every human on earth relies on, energy, food, water, waste, sanitation, construction, apparel, like those are the things that every single person on earth is a customer and we haven't even touched them yet. Silicon mm. Valley isn't touching those things. Mm. And so I don't think it's San Francisco and I don't think it's the Bay Area. Mm. Um, I think that, you know, there that we, we had, you know, uh, we had our heyday. Um, we did a lot. We learned a lot. I think there's very important things to learn from Silicon Valley. Um, we've been suc more successful than the rest of the world at, the, at a lot of these things. Um, and it's important to learn from them, but I think it's time for the rest of the world to look at that, look at what worked in Silicon Valley and learn how and figure out how to do something better. How do you build on that? Mm. And I've been all over the world. I've been to a lot of places that think they're the, Silicon Valley of Europe or the Silicon Valley of Latin America. And it's all bullshit because um, they're not doing, they're not honest with themselves about what it is that works in Silicon Valley. And I think that we have to get past that. We need the rest of the, we can't just have technology be centered in, in one place. We need the whole world to play. We need the whole world to help us. And, um, and I think, you know, the, the Zoom generation that COVID enabled, getting everybody used to working remotely and working with teams around the world helped a lot. It broke free a mental block that I think it, a lot of the investors had. You know, it's, it's I, I haven't, uh, no, I think I accidentally backed two companies in Silicon Valley. But, you know, in general, <laughs> uh, they're all over, the, all over the place. And I like that. Um, there are other problems that need to be solved, you know, but different countries, different jurisdictions, different cultures, they're good for different things. And we need everybody playing at a high level. So, and, and we need them all playing in the major leagues. So mm -hmm. no, no more, no more little league. Let's yeah. like, let's learn from Silicon Valley. A lot of things that could be done better. Show us how to do it better. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about interest rates and how interest rates kind of incentivize certain technological trends. And it seems like the low interest rates of the last 20 to 30 years have really incentivized that software kind of thing that we were talking about. Cause it says like, okay, well, look at how much software did for the, for this generation of investors. Uh, look at that. Let's focus on that. And the, the incentive of low interest rates is to basically sp spend money on high risky investments, but it also kind of changes the, the investor's mentality because it, it's like, okay, well, I can't get this money from just putting it in the bank. I maybe could get it from the stock market and like what that did to venture. And do you think that this deep tech renaissance, is it all related to low interest rates? Well, actually, is it all related at all related to the changing of the lowest lower interest rate environments? I guess a better way to ask that question would be, um, do you think the recent change in interest rates have started to make investors think more accurately about the real world rather than um, try to think about what happened in the past 20 years? Yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, um, I mean, the low interest rates are it's a mixed bag. Certainly it was helpful for startups. And I mean, 
startups have trouble borrowing money, mm -hmm. right? So it's not as direct as that, um, especially without Silicon Bank, Bank, Silicon Valley Bank, they're going to have harder time uh, borrowing money yeah. because banks really, you know, they want to see three years of PL or whatever. That's not how, that's not what a startup has. Yeah. So, um, but that said, investors who put money into funds, who put money into startups, you know, those low interest rates help them to be able to borrow money, right? If I can borrow money to pay for my house, then I can take my cash, put it in a private equity fund or a venture fund or something, or even the stock market, and I can start to make other investments. If I can't borrow money to, to mortgage a home even, which is happening now, in a lot of, and, and or to pay for a building or something else, then all my cash goes into that. Yeah. And so there's the, just this kind of uh, interconnectedness uh, that, that makes those things play out. Here's how I think about it. You know, the, t look, thinking about the interest rates is going to be a terrible way to, um, to, to focus on, you know, to do venture capital. Like, mm -hmm. you know, we have to play a longer game. Ask yourself over 10 years, over the next 10 years, our interest rates or, or whatever going to continue to be high. Um, hopefully not, but, um, but yeah, it probably puts a fine point on, you know, can I invest in things that are hard assets? Can I invest in things that are better long-term bets, that kind of stuff that's probably happening. But here's what I think about deep tech um, that investors are missing. Cause I probably am not going to be the guy with insightful things to say about interest rates. Mm. What I do think is that we have this playbook that's been systematized, you know, that's kind of your, you know, your, Y Combinator uh, playbook, let's say, of like, you know, get two guys, get a startup, get an LLC or whatever, you know, go uh, get a, you know, make an MVP, get a first customer, you know, rent, you know, exit, rinse and repeat, you know, this whatever, there's this playbook that's been worked out that's largely SaaS oriented. And it has some things about it that are not applicable here. So for example, um, you see these software companies raising a CDE round right now. Mm -hmm. They're out there raising these rounds because the public markets have been inaccessible, right? So they can't go public. So staying private forever, you know, Stripe was probably the poster child for this. And early investors are experiencing more and more and more dilution with every round, right? And so now that's taking your venture guys saying, oh shit, I can't be a series A investor. I got to be a seed investor or I got to be a pre-seed investor. I got to get in early, get a bigger piece of the pie so that I can endure all that dilution. Interesting. It's, that seems to be coming. But look at like, we have a company making cargo ships and they're, they're autonomous like a Tesla and they're sailing in the wind. They have no crew, no fuel and no emissions. Like there's nothing not to like about that. It's like sailing's been working for centuries. <laughs> um, and for some reason we built this industry by like burning nasty bunker oil. It makes no sense. So obviously we can do that. So the thing about that is the day that first ship sails, yeah, maybe I got to use venture money to get there. But the day that first ship sails, I've got no technical risk, right? because you can see it sail. 
And I've got no market risk because there's a vast industrial market for shipping, right? And I'm not taking any more venture money. We're not raising money on equity. We're using debt financing. We're using project financing, you know, shipbuilding financing. That already exists. Those are massive pools of capital that Zoom and Slack can't get to, mm. right? But in deep tech, because we're making the, you know, late stage deep tech, we don't call it deep tech. It's called industrials, <laughs> right? <laughs> and that turns out to be much even bigger markets. So, you know, what I think is that when you're looking at investing in these areas, a part of what you want to see is, hey, yeah, we're going early, we're taking technical risk, but we are exchanging that for no market risk. Yeah. Like a better, another example, we have a company that invented a, a non-toxic chemical process that can separate gold from electronics waste. Mm. Mm. Every year we put $20 billion worth of gold into electronics, and it ends up in a gold mine we call a landfill, right? <laughs> so now we have a way to recover that. B people are busy recycling the cheapest crap on earth, cardboard and plastic bottles. We haven't even recycled the most expensive stuff on earth, the gold. So here's the thing. there You got your Y Combinator kids out there trying to find product market fit. There is no product market fit problem for gold. <laughs> It literally defines liquidity. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. if I can, I can sell as much gold as I can get. I can sell as much energy as I can get. I can sell as much shipping as I can do. So there's not a, so these companies are different. And that's why deep tech is attractive. If you understand these dynamics is that, okay, probably going to experience less rounds of dilution, probably going to act. People always say, aren't the ships expensive? Isn't putting stuff in space expensive? Yes, it's expensive, mm -hmm. but Every power plant is expensive. Those are billion dollar projects and you don't raise it on equity, mm -hmm. right? You don't raise it from venture. That, that's, that money is there. If you show up with a power plant that's 10 times better or cheaper or cleaner or more efficient, the money's there. So I think that those are things to get in, in the brain of an investor who's, you know, who maybe has spent more time in software than deep tech and, and understand that these are the kinds of things that are possible. Mm -hmm. But so I imagine that deep tech has been going on this whole time, but it's probably been like, what's another example? I mean, not really biotech because yeah. biotech has a, is such a strange mar market, but like there are other things that have just not had the same mind share, but they've been going on the entire time. Um, well, yeah. So yeah, you, you have some exceptions. So I stay out of the life sciences, but there's a, a whole biotech and whole game there and lots of amazing things happening. There's just a more prescribed regulatory track. Um, and it's just not, it does. I think it doesn't need my help. So I don't work on those things, but for almost all the renegade stuff, which I do like to do, um, you know, scientific research continued. Like we have had incredible progress, all kinds of amazing breakthroughs, all kinds of amazing yeah. science has been done. But the day it gets out of science, the day we prove it works, what should happen is venture should be picking it up and getting it on a commercial track. But for 20 years, we've been dropping it on the floor. And so there's all kinds of, there's almost no problem in the world that we don't know how to solve technically. 
there's like almost no technical problem that you can find where we don't have a technology that can make it dramatically better. But we're not doing it because, you know, we're busy trying to figure out if like what is be real is the next Snapchat or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So um, it, it almost sounds like uh, there's is a really interesting kind of thread here, which is that if you look through history, there there are things get hidden in plain sight like they get yeah. hidden by the the and the occult the occult is a great word for that because people think occult means something like um you know crazy people talking about crazy stuff which definitely yeah. mean that but uh but uh but like occult originally means getting hidden by a planetary body um and right, so like right. things get, get hidden behind our sort of like uh inability to think about things and people have all sorts of ideas as to why that happens but it feels like what you're saying is that due yeah. to a certain bunch of it and somebody recently on my show talked about how most of the inventions that we have really changed the world happened between 1870 and 1890 and then that's actually right. where most of the inventions that we now are currently experiencing the benefits from that's when the version one was was thought about yeah um, yeah and so like and we got stuff from 1970 to 1990 that we still yeah. haven't deployed so like let's get on it Okay, interesting. Yeah. What are some of the things from 1970 to 1990 that were studied? I don't know. This doesn't quite map to that, but like one I've been working on that I think is interesting is um, I had worked on uh, 3D printing early on and um, helped out a little bit with MakerBot, which was like the first consumer 3D printer. And, you know, before that, no one had ever seen a 3D printer. There were you know, exotic prototyping machines and labs and pretty rare and expensive. MakerBot kind of made it cheap enough to put one in every elementary school. And um, and kids grew up these days with that in their mind. You know, they design something in Minecraft and click print and then it exists in the physical world. That's just how they think. Generation before them didn't have that. You know, they think in you know, with a completely different toolkit. And that toolkit is not programmable, but the 3D printing toolkit is programmable. So that machine can make anything you can draw. Whereas before you had to like use, you know, cut a mold and put it in an injection molding machine and inject plastic to make a Happy Meal toy. And then when you wanted a Batman instead of Spider-Man, you had to like start all over. And, but a 3D printer can just make both and then it can print your glasses and coffee mugs and sneakers or whatever. So so there's been this. So then what happened is we thought, holy shit, 3D printing is going to be the future. We funded a zillion 3D printing companies and we all thought that, you know, factories would work this way. And here we are. It's uh, last I checked 2023 and we still don't have any factories that 3D print stuff. And and what's interesting about that is that we had we hit that hype cycle. We super funded things. The hype didn't pay off fast enough and everybody lost interest and moved on. Mm -hmm. So we left that technology behind in a way. And the reason 3D printers didn't work out in manufacturing, basically two reasons. They're they're super slow because they're like one pixel printers. You like put down a pixel of plastic and rinse and repeat. And it's just so slow. And at the end of that, you 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 have to in order to do that, you have these uh high value inputs, you know, very expensive very precise plastics or whatever. And then you make these Happy Meal toys with a 3D printer and they cost uh, 10 times as much or 100 times as much as, as injection molding them in China because that's like the cheapest way to make anything. So it hasn't really worked out. But I met these guys 
who had figured out that they could um, adapt the metal style of 3D printer. So, um, so I met these guys who had figured out how to adapt the other kind of 3D printer, which is the powder bed style. And those are faster. So a powder bed printer is used for metals. You put down a bunch of metal and you run over it with like an inkjet head, like um, putting down glue. And then you just pick up these parts out of a bin of dust and shake them off and you've got your part. And those printers are faster because they're like layer at a time instead of pixel at a time. And so um, these guys had took that kind of printer and they modified it so that they could print with used coffee grounds from Starbucks. So now they can they fill the they fill the thing with with used coffee grounds that they've dried out. The it puts down a layer of coffee grounds, goes over it with a binder like using an inkjet head, and they print these parts out of coffee. And the parts they're making like coffee mugs and sinks and bicycles out of it and then they just powder coat them. You can't even tell they're made of coffee, right? But here's the thing. Th that flips the economics. So now, because the, the, the input material is less than free. <laughs> it's like they get paid to haul it away from Starbucks. And so now they can take these, make these parts in the U.S. fully automated in a programmable machine, and it costs less than doing it in China. Mm. Right. And so now so now we have these these technologies that that come of age like it, it you know, it, we got excited too early. We got a little out of control. We overdid it. Now we got to revisit it and say, oh, shit. Now we have all the pieces with the economics, with the technology to reshore manufacturing and to do things that the the way that and, and we're also obviously sequestering carbon and keeping biomass out of landfills and all that kind of stuff. So. It's, a, it's just really cool. And that's why I get excited about it. As you can right. see how this could be better and it can make things better and it's not going to take a decade. And it really goes back to that original science fiction type of thing that if you look at yeah. any science fiction novel from the 1930s to the 1970s, it's all about the promise and optimism of technology. And then if you look at anything from the 1970s to the 2000, early 2000s, it's all just like cyberpunk dystopian. Like it's all going to get really, really gnarly. And it's so good. Yeah, well, you got to boycott dystopia. <laughs> that is some bullshit. Yeah. You know, and I think it's lazy and irresponsible. If you're a science fiction novelist and all you can do is write scary stories about how AI or robots turn us into paper clips or something, then how creative are you really? Yeah. Like, let's see you write a positive, practical vision for the future because we know it's possible, right? We know it's possible that the future could be more awesome. Doesn't mean it's going to be necessarily. I'm not saying be a Pollyannish optimist, but I'm telling you already on this podcast, we've talked about three or four different ways that the future could be more awesome. Why wouldn't you try to make that happen? You yeah. know, <laughs> what else could you could be better than getting like just thinking differently about the way that we cr create wastes and show, you know, that that's a huge problem that this whole, the last 19, from the 1970s, we all talked about recycling and we all venture, we all, um, what do you call it? When we, uh, the, we all made ourselves feel great by the, by saying we're all recycling. We and then placate we ourselves. Yeah. 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 yeah and and recycling is a good example. China. 
Yeah. Uh, oh God, the, the recycling. I mean, it's, it's, it's not only depressing, it's practically psychedelic. I, you know, a buddy of mine, um, Asaf Biederman years ago, he put like GPS trackers in trash and then watched the trash and the recyclables travel all over the world. And they would get like, like 15,000 frequent flyer miles before they stopped going anywhere. Cause, because it's a, it's a laundering game. Like yeah. we're literally just sending the stuff around marking off a spreadsheet saying, yeah, we, we got rid of this much recyclables and, and, and look, and then you're burning more coal to recycle materials than if you just made fresh materials. It's, it's, we're 50 years into recycling in the U S it's not working. Yeah. So I look, I'm not saying we shouldn't have tried and we should continue to try, but a lot of this is just putting the cart before the horse. This is a lot of the problem we have with, you know, with clean tech, green tech, climate change stuff is people are trying to solve a problem out of order. And so, for example, recycling is one that will work once you solve energy. Like if you had a nuclear reactor and you were, you know, using the excess heat to to recycle plastic. Okay, great. Now we're in business. Yeah. But if you have a coal plant and you're recycling plastic with it, that's not going to, you're not moving the needle. And so you just have to be able to do some arithmetic. And a lot of times, if you do the arithmetic, what you find is, oh, I just got to solve energy first. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's the most important one. And it's and it's really critical to go solve energy if you solve energy, then you solve a lot of other problems for free. And, and along that list is, is recycling. And it's wild because it, it always comes back to the human element inside of it. We always like there's such a strong incentive to just do something, even if it's the wrong thing, even if it's the counterproductive thing. Um, but if we can kind of all it takes is sort of channeling our consciousness and our intelligence into various different pathways to actually start thinking about, OK, well, if I if I try recycling, so I've learned from this recycling that it's not working, it's all getting shipped to China. Well, maybe I should just stop working on that thing. But the way we've got we've got society set up is that we set up these bureaucracies that then have a life of their own and then use that as a as an incentive to continue to get money from the system in order to 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 kind of self-evident show that they're working. And it's just it's so crazy that the that like that that's the way the system's set up and that there is another way to do it. But yeah, it just takes like thinking critically but thinking critically is sort of like a, a term that nobody really knows what how to what it is. So, <laughs> thinking critically is out of vogue yeah. <laughs> yeah i think you know look humans are story powered creatures and we sometimes get the wrong story in our heads and set ourselves on the wrong course for generations i mean you can see that happening now with your friends with psychedelics you know we outlawed them before we understood them decades ago and we threw generations of of people under the bus who might have been helped by them you know war veterans who we had no other solution for now we're figuring out that these psychedelic drugs are potentially the only treatment for ptsd that's really working reliably you know we have those things and we didn't even research them we outlawed them to the point where we couldn't even research them and that was an idiotic thing to do. We made the wrong choice. And we're finally at a point where we're getting to course correct. You know, nuclear reactors, we told ourselves the wrong story. We got the got reactors 
conflated with bombs in our minds. We had mushroom clouds in our heads and we were telling ourselves that this was scary before we understood them. And they turned out to be incredibly safe, incredibly useful. Um, and we outlawed that stuff into oblivion and we made the wrong choice. If we had built nuclear reactors since the 80s, you never would have heard of global warming. And we made the wrong choice. And so now we have the painful hard work of course correcting on that. And on a long time horizon, humans always do yeah. make essentially the right choice. Mm. Like on a long enough time horizon, the technology always wins. Mm. Like whoever invented the wheel, we probably, you know, we, did, we couldn't throw them under the bus because we didn't have buses yet, but probably assassinated them or clubbed them to death. Yeah. And then like, you know, a couple of generations, kids are like, fuck you, dad, wheels are cool. And the next thing you know, we're good to go with the wheel. And that's kind of what my daughter doesn't know about Chernobyl, <laughs> right? She's going to be like, you know, fuck you, dad, we're building nuclear reactors. Great. You know, like there's a, that's kind of the life cycle of new technologies. Humans can sort of screw it up for a few first few generations, but eventually when, when we invent something that's good and we do the work to prove that it is cost effective and all that, we eventually adopt it. And it just sometimes takes generations. What I think is important now is to tell better stories. That's why I think that this, you know, the, so the storyteller class, our creative class, if they want to be meaningful and helpful in the world, help us tell positive, practical stories about how technology can make the future more awesome. We need that help. That's not my job. <laughs> you know, somebody else should be doing a good job of that. Mm. Awesome. So anyway, I'm ranting and <laughs> yeah, about <laughs> And uh, so last couple of minutes, like what um, what's something that we haven't talked about that's still getting you very excited that you'd like to talk about? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I'm lucky because, uh, you know, what I do is I just try to find all the mad scientists and crazy hackers who have invented new technologies. Um, I try to see if I can help help them make them real and get them into the world. And so every day I get to spend time with really smart and interesting folks and pick their brains and learn about these things. And so, and some of them we can help with and some, you know, need a lot of work still. And so, yeah, I think, you know, if you find anybody with like crazy hair and a DeLorean, send them my way. <laughs> I'm sure I've got at least 12 listening right now. With crazy yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thank yeah. you so much for coming on the show. Um, and of course, uh, how can people find you uh, if they're interested in, in learning more? Um, I'm Pablos at Deep Future. I have uh, deepfuture.tech is our website. There's a podcast there called Deep Future. Um, it's mostly just me picking the brains of nerds who you might never meet otherwise. Um, and uh, what else? I mean, I don't tweet much, but um, yeah, keep keep an eye out. We have a lot of interesting things coming along. So, cool. Thank you so much. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, III. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or iTunes for every weekly episode that I publish on Monday mornings. Hope you have a great day.